You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So uh, a quick summation of last week's um, sermon where, where Nick walked us through chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, the first part of this chapter. Um, if you recall, the author, Paul, had had spent some time stripping away all the reasons that he could claim by his own merit salvation in Christ, right? Like he said, if it was by merit or ethnicity or things you've done, then I have the, the best claim of all to be saved. He said, I, I'm Jewish, I'm circumcised, I'm from the best tribe of Israel, I follow the Hebrew law, I'm blameless, I'm righteous, I'm zealous. But, but last week, he kind of strips all of that away, and he says, actually, all of that is trash, All of that is rubbish compared to what it means to be saved in Christ. None of it counts for my salvation. Therefore, everything we might be born into, everything we might accumulate on the way, every task we complete, every degree or job or accolade that we earn, none of that can save us, Paul says. Only through Christ and his merit applied to us can we be saved. Therefore, as far as salvation is concerned, our past is pointless, He says, faith in Christ alone justifies, which means that Jesus Christ is the only true obedient one and that we are all dead in our sin and dead people can't do anything. They're waiting for something to happen to them. And though, uh, and this Jesus, though he was truly blameless, he took the penalty for death and rose from the dead, right? Sealing the, 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 the substitution in our place. And therefore, because he's the first raised from the dead, we who are dead in our sins can raise once from sin to life, from sin and death to life and freedom and righteousness, but also at the end of all things. Amen. The resurrection confirms the death has been accepted. And so we are justified and seen as righteous. We are saved. And yet this morning, Paul goes on to talk about what happens after that event after one is saved and justified by God through their faith in Jesus. This is what I started out in the intro saying. This is the process of sanctification. It's a process that follows justification, right? Justification means we are justified. We are found righteous and obedient in Christ. Well, sanctification is the process that follows, both of which happen through faith. This is what James means in, the, in James's letter where he says, uh, faith without works is dead. He means faith that saves, faith in Christ that justifies is also faith that produces good works by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of that said, let's get into the text because Paul has some clarity to bring at the beginning of the section, which is helpful for us. He has a little bit of a confession after making this really, really strong case for his own merit being something that if merit saves should have saved him. He says this in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he links this to maturity, saying this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Love that from Paul right there. Um, So the Bible often uses this language of growing up to talk about sanctification. It's probably the primary metaphor for the process of sanctification. It talks about growth, like human growth. Um, 
A few examples in 1 Corinthians 3.2, Paul writes, uh, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not and remain not ready for it. So he's not talking about literal milk there. He's talking about the complicated things of faith and works for the Ephesians. They just weren't ready for all of that, right? He's saying they were too young. They needed to grow up in order to digest the things of faith and sin and salvation. They weren't mature enough, he's saying there. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, he writes that by achieving unity of faith and unity of belief in the body of Christ, in the church, we mature into adulthood is the language he uses there. Or Jesus, when he tells Nicodemus in John uh, that you must be born again, he says new Christians are like infants in need of care and grace and patience as they are helped to grow up in maturity. The New Testament authors love to use the imagery of infants, children, adolescents, and adults when talking about the process of sanctification. I think it's helpful because we all kind of understand this, right? We all, it's a human experience to grow up and learn and mature as we experience the world. So here in Philippians, Paul is saying, look, like, this is how mature and maturing Christians think. And this is what he links it to. It's a little surprising to me. He says this, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward toward what lies ahead. I press on toward the prize of the upward call of God. I think this is really interesting, especially in our cultural moment where, um, where things like trauma are so much in the, the cultural vernacular, right? And, and my asterisk is, please don't hear me wrong. I am, I am an advocate for counseling and therapy. But I think biblical maturity here is, it, Paul is getting at this definition of biblical maturity that's defined by courage and optimism and future orientation where people aren't disassociated from their past, but they're not stuck in their past. Right? I think all of us um, would be helped by, if we haven't done this already, to do some work in understanding our pasts and doing the work of understanding past traumas if there are those things. But the reason, as Christians, that we do those things is, that, is so that we can move forward. We don't, we don't do the work of understanding our past so that we can get stuck in our past. We do the work of understanding our past so we can move and graduate and mature and move forward. Um, I think that's what Paul is getting at, but, but he's actually kind of coming at it from the positive side, right? Like we think about past as such negative things that need to be investigated, unpacked, and learned from. Paul's actually talking about it, how great his past was as far as merit is concerned. He's coming at it from a different angle that we are in our cultural moment tempted to come at our pasts. He's saying, um, look at my past, as far as religion goes, it's spotless, it's blameless, my, my pedigree is outstanding, and yet I'm not sitting here caught up in that past, particularly now that I've found myself in Christ, or rather Christ has found me, he says. Now that I've been saved, I, I forget that, and as I grow in maturity, I look forward to the goal, pressing on toward God in Christ upward. So, understanding our past is important. Um, I'm not saying just forget your past or pretend like nothing ever happened in the past, but the goal of the work that we do with our past is to move forward in health and optimism, not cynicism, with identities that are not defined by what's happened to us, other than what's happened to us in Christ. The good news is, and this is good news for me, (laughs) 
he says, if you don't get this yet, don't worry, God's going God's to help you get it. He's saying, hey, like the same Holy Spirit that has a lot of work to do on me, that spirit dwells within you, brothers and sisters, and, and that, that Holy Spirit is working on you to reveal things to you, to make you wise, to change your character into the image of Christ. Like, fear not. He's going to reveal that to you. Um, I think that just displays a lot of faith in Paul that Paul has for the brothers and sisters of the church in Philippi and all the churches he writes to. He says, I'm not that worried because God who works in me is working in you. Paul ends this kind of thought in verse 16 when he says, let us hold true to what we have attained. Again, we are reminded that Christ has justified us, that we have been freed from sin and made alive in righteousness. Therefore, we have attained salvation. He says, hold true to it. And holding true to it looks like you move up toward God. We press on in our imperfection. We strive toward Christ-likeness. We know that God is at work in us through his spirit, through his word, through his people. And therefore, we press on. And I think in this explanation, Paul then anticipates two questions that he answers in the next section and really for the end of it until we get to the end of 4.1. Uh, the first question is, okay, define it. What does it look like practically for us to press on toward the goal of God in Christ? What does it look like for us to walk through the, the process of sanctification? Like, what should we do? And the second question is, why? Why should we do it? Why do we press on? towards God in Christ. Verse 17 answers the, the how or the what, what it should look like. He says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to this example you have in us. Very simply, he answers, a really good way to make this come alive for you, a really good way to make uh, sanctification and, and journeying towards Christ and him, his image, a really good way to make this tangible is to find really godly people in your midst and imitate them. He says, like, find godly people around you. He, he tells them, look at me or look at my brothers. Um, but, but see, what are their habits? What do, how do they act? How do they repent? How do they spend their time with the Lord? How do they pray? What is their home like? Do they seem joyful? Um, Paul gives himself as an example, and a few weeks ago, we saw him give Timothy and Epaphroditus that example. And for clarity's sake, when we think of people like this, like, okay, who, who should I imitate here? We typically trend towards mentor language, and therefore, we trend towards, well, they just need to be older than me. But I think one thing we need to remember is that Paul gave Timothy as an example just a few weeks ago of somebody to imitate in Christ, and Paul will later write to Timothy in a letter to him, First and Second Timothy, and say, don't let them despise you for your youth. Historians believe that Timothy was called into pastoral ministry between 16 and 21, quite young. And yet, Paul props up Timothy and says, look at Timothy, imitate him as he imitates Christ. That's a that's a bold statement. So I think um, we can think of this, especially in a room that's generally younger, and look at the people in this room, look at the people in our parish gatherings, look at the people in our renewal groups, and see the ways that they love and follow Jesus, see the ways that they flourish in their time with the Lord, in their prayer with the Lord, in their times in the Word. We can learn from each other. We can learn from each other in the ways we fail to do these things. 
This is a discipleship method that Paul gives us here. It's communal, it's beautiful, and it's biblical. Follow each other as we follow Jesus. A second, so that's kind of the how. He says, okay, here's a really practical idea. Look at those who are following Jesus really well and imitate them. And then he says, uh, and here's why, right? Paul gets to the, the meat, the big question of why do we do this? And the way he does it is he paints a picture of diverging paths. This is, this is the, the diverging path for all humanity. Uh, he says this in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We strive on toward the goal in Christ as those who are saved, but there are two paths for all humans. And so first, Paul talks about the path of destruction, those who are enemies of Jesus, who are led to destruction. He says their God is their belly. What does that mean? Well, in a sense, in a sense it does mean food, but, but largely, Paul uses this language of appetite and hunger a lot in different Gospels. And, and generally, what he's talking about is not just like overindulgence, but rather their God being their own pleasure, their own satisfaction, their own nourishment, being sustained by themselves. Their gaze, he's saying, is their, their gaze is fixed inward, like at their belly. It's not that they're, they're literally worshiping themselves or their gut, but in a sense, what has become their God is themselves, their own satisfaction, right? This is, their, this is their God. Paul has just talked about pressing on upward, looking upward with a gaze fixed upward towards God in Christ, the process of sanctification to imitate one another, to look at how each other follows Jesus. And he says the opposite of that is just to look at your stomach, just to look at you and think, what could please me? What could satisfy me? What is owed to me? What can I eat? Romans 6, 8, 16, 18 talks about this idea as well. And Paul says, they have an appetite for deception and smooth talk. What feeds us is the question. What feeds the world is the question. And then he says, when they do look up from their belly, it's to do this. It's to glory or bask in their shame. It's to look up and say, I celebrate the ways that I worship myself, and you should celebrate it too. They invite the world to come along and say, glory in the things that I glory in, namely myself. And Paul says, those things are of shame. They're shameful things to raise up and say, celebrate this. The prideful, he says, flaunt their opposition to God. They glory in their shame. They worship themselves. And this leads where? Destruction. Why does he, so why is Paul reminding them that there's this other path, right? Like Paul is very much writing to Christians. He's writing to the church in Philippi. Um, Like they know at this point that those who don't believe in Jesus are going to hell. They're aware of that. I I think what Paul is doing is he's appealing He's appealing for them to be missional. He's appealing for them to care about these people, right? Like, he's saying, this this should make our hearts yearn to share the gospel with those who live like this because, truthfully, this path leads to destruction. 
It's also just an empty way to live on earth, right? Like if you, if you divorce eternity from this way of living, worshiping self and worshiping our shame and denying God's goodness, it's an empty way of living. Like that's why our culture is obsessed with both living in this way about what's true for me or what is my identity in, and let's celebrate that only as my main source of worship and yet we're, we're depressed and anxious and the foundations of society are just kind of constantly shaking right now. A society of people worshiping themselves is bound to fall in on itself. And Paul says this not with disgust, not with disdain, not with pride that I'm not one of them. It says he says it with tears in his eyes. He says it with tears in his eyes. He longs for them to know Jesus and the way of rest and beauty and life He longs for them to have a God that is not their belly, an empty God who's never not hungry again, but a God of rest and satisfaction, a God who says on a cross it is finished. He longs for them to have a God who knows them and by his Holy Spirit causes them to grow in humility. And I wonder, um, this is kind of made me think this week, like do I I get teary-eyed when I think of the lost in my life? Do I get on the floor and put my nose to the carpet and plead that God would save them? I don't, but I want to invite you to join me in prayer this week that the Lord would ignite a fire in your gut to weep for the lost in our life. Believe that their path is destruction and believe that we have a better path and that they can have a better path. It's open to them. I think prayer is the starting point here. So one path is destruction, and I think in in reminding them, Paul is reminding them, you've been saved from this path, and you, who are mature, are able to save others. Invite them into the kingdom. Invite them into the citizenship of heaven. And then he goes on to explain that. One path, destruction. The other path is what we get to invite people on, to stand firm in Christ and what he has done, to look upward toward God and Christ and to look toward and upward toward the future. To do this is to look toward your citizenship in heaven, not on earth, not on Houston, not in America, not in Philippi, but in heaven, right? The city of Philippi is this proud Roman city. The citizens are proud Roman citizens, and their leader was Caesar. And uh, history tells us that Caesars saw themselves as saviors and gods. But heaven's citizens, Paul is saying, know that Caesar is a bad god. He's a counterfeit savior. He's not a god at all. There's an election this week, and uh, a lot of folks in our country believe that our elected officials are our saviors, right? They... Don't get me wrong, I think voting is beautiful. I think the freedom to do so is a blessing, one that we should take up. But as citizens of heaven, our hope is not in the next election. That's not where our hope is. That's not where salvation is. We pray that the Lord would use good systems and use good people, particularly his people, in government, but our citizenship is not there. Our full hope lies with our heavenly citizenship, not with the next election. Amen? I'd argue, 
as a, as a reinforcement of something I already said, I'd argue that living into our heavenly citizenship should make us excellent earthly citizens, should make us people who care about the city and care about the nation and care about voting. But we can't put our hope there. That's what Paul is saying. Our hope is not in our earthly citizenship. We end, um, we end this thought of hope and citizenship and sanctification of Paul. He ends it with chapter 4, verse 1, saying this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What a, what a conclusion to a call. And the call he's made is, Jesus has saved you, not by your own works, by his work. The Holy Spirit is changing you. He's sanctifying you. He's making you into the image of Christ. Therefore, fix your eyes upward on him, not in the past, but upward on him. Stand firm in Christ. Imitate those, if you want practicals, who follow Jesus. Imitate their lives. What do they do? How do they act? Weep for the lost. Boldly share the gospel with them. Snatch them from the pit of destruction and invite them into a different citizenship. Paul says to do this is to live into your heavenly citizenship. It's a tough call. I think there's a lot of hard things that Paul is calling the Philippians to. That's why he reminds them often of his love for them, his affection for them, how much he cares about them. And with tears in his eyes, he reflects on the lost and says, we have a chance to preach this good gospel, this good citizenship to the lost. He invites them to grow in their maturity and invite others into the infancy that is born again, those who are born again in Christ. It's very good news for our world. I want to invite you again to pray with me this week that the Lord would ignite a fire for our people, for sojourn mantras, for the lost neighbors in our life. And will we tell them about, we don't, to, when that fire gets ignited, even if, even if some of that fire is being ignited by the fact that their path is destruction, like I'm fearful for their eternal salvation, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful for their eternal state, that doesn't mean I go out and say, hey, you're going to go to hell. No, I, I preach the love of Christ to them the love of God in Christ and invite them to a better path. So I think we can have a complex motivation. I think Paul invites us to that, but I think at the same time, he invites us to pray, to pray that the Lord make what is complex or difficult wise to us. He does that in Philippians. So beloved family, you are loved. I love you. Stand firm in the Lord. And as we come to the table this morning, we join the citizens of God's kingdom all around the world in a meal that reminds us that we stand firm only in Christ and what he has done. Let's pray.